Before the show starts, I want to make an appeal to all you listeners that if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon. Not only will you help this podcast continue to move forward, you will now get a little something in return. You will join the table of ranks of the SRB empire. For a monthly contribution of $1 to $4, you will be given the rank of Collegiate Registrar and receive an SRB podcast refrigerator magnet. For $5 to $9, you'll be named the Collegiate Secretary and get an SRB podcast shot glass and all the privileges of lower ranks. For $10 to $24, you'll become a Collegiate Counselor and receive a promo code for 30% off of books from the University of Pittsburgh Press and all the privileges of lower ranks. And for $25 or more, you'll be anointed a Chancellor and you will be sent a set of four SRB podcast shot glasses and all the privileges of other lower ranks. Join the table of ranks and help me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else by clicking on the Patreon button on seansrussiablog.org. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, as always, Sean Guillory. Before we get started today, I wanted to make a request to all my listeners who use or are thinking of using the podcast in their courses. If you're one of those, could you please drop me a line via email, Facebook, or through the podcast website with your course and the institution you're teaching at? Also, if you can give me a sense of how you're using the podcast and your students' reactions. This information will be quite helpful for potential funding. Thanks. There's been a long-standing debate amongst historians and political science over how Russia really works. Is the Tsar all-powerful, or is, is his power embedded in a network of patron-client relations and circumscribed by a circle of potentates? This debate has been extended into the nature of politics in post-Soviet Eurasia as well. What is the nature of executive power? How do leaders like Putin maintain it? And how do elites in places like Ukraine, Georgia, and Kyrgyzstan lose it? What is the nature of the colored revolutions of the 2000s? Namely, how does politics in Eurasia really work? I turn to Henry Hale for some insight. Henry Hale is professor of political science and international affairs in the Elliott School of International Affairs at Georgetown University and co-director of the Program on New Approaches to Research and Security in Eurasia, or PONARS Eurasia. He's the author of many articles and books on post-Soviet politics, his most recent book is Patronal Politics, Eurasian Regime Dynamics and Comparative Perspective, published by Cambridge University Press. Here's Henry Hale. You begin patronal politics with a critique of how political systems are understood in Eurasia as either sliding away or toward democracy. So what is your criticism of this framework and, and how did it lead you to look at patronalistic dimensions of politics? When I first started thinking about big patterns of regime change in the former Soviet space, you know, this was during the period after which the Soviet Union had just collapsed. And it seemed that everybody was optimistic that we were going to have now a transition to democracy across the region. And the question was only what kind of democracy, how fast was going to be the change. But then 
pretty soon it became clear that a lot of regions were not, in fact, transitioning towards democracy, or at least after an initial move, they seemed to be going back uh, away from it, back towards some kind of authoritarianism, um, though usually not communism. And then after that period uh, happened, suddenly you start to see the revolutions take place, the color revolutions in uh, Serbia in 2000, uh, but then in the post-Soviet space, the places I was watching most closely with the Rose Revolution in 2003, the Orange Revolution in 2004, the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan in 2005. Um, so suddenly it seemed like democracy was victorious again. It was on the march. Um, and around that time, I started to think, well, you know, this is starting to get a little um, suspicious that, you know, our, it, it started to raise questions for me that maybe our models aren't predicting things well, especially when it turned out that the color revolutions, um, you know, were not in fact having the kinds of democratizing effects consistently that a lot of people had expected. Um, so we've just seen this uh, sort of roller coaster ride of expectations about the future. And I saw this in Russia itself, which on one hand, you know, has been going through a uh, one could put it as a fairly steady process of moving towards authoritarianism, uh, you know, since the Soviet collapse. But on the other hand, I started to see these these cycles of uh, periods where you had intense contestation for power, alternating with periods where you had seemingly all the major forces rallying around a particular leader in some kind of cyclic process. So um, all this led me to think that well, you know, maybe. The framework that we usually use in terms of thinking about are these democracies or are these authoritarian countries really didn't fit very well to the patterns of, of regime dynamics that we see in the post-Soviet world. Uh, so I started to think about whether or not we could think about other, uh, you know, develop other conceptual tools for understanding what's going on. Uh, which is not to say that we can't say that a country is not fully democratic or not authoritarian. My point is only that that only gets us so far uh, that if we really want to understand the workings that, you know, how these regimes actually function, how they produce political outcomes, policies, decisions for who obtains power, who loses power, we're going to need some kind of different conceptual tools. So you turn to uh, what you call paternal politics, and the issue of, of patrons and client networks has a, a long history, of course, in Russia, and many scholars have dealt with it in contemporary Russia. So why don't you speak about what this is, what are what is paternalism, and how does it differ from patrimonialism or clientism or any other kinds of forms of uh, patron-client networks? So I decided to use a, a new term uh, with some hesitation because uh, the idea of patronalism is related to these other concepts. And in fact, uh, my ideas were shaped through reading a lot about these other concepts. Um, in short, patronalism is a social equilibrium, so a, a self-reinforcing social situation in which the, the primary way in which people organize for political ends is through the meeting out of individualized, personalized rewards and punishments. Um, and this is done through extended networks of actual personal acquaintance, uh, as opposed to broad mobilization of people with who share primarily common ideas, but aren't connected through any particular social network. So the, these would be societies that do not feature large uh, you know, powerful uh, cause organizations or interest groups that, uh, you know, like the 
National Rifle Association or the National Organization of Women in the United States, the Sierra Club, all these things where you have lots of people, even though they don't know anyone in the organization, maybe, you know, will still send money from their paychecks to, to contribute to the cause and to the organization. Instead, this would be a society where you have you know, even political parties that, to a large extent, reflect primarily the extended personal networks of the individual party leader. And so it's obviously related to patron-client relations. So I would say that in societies that have high degrees of patronalism or that are highly patronalistic, as I would say, you're going to have extensive patron-client relations, um, patronage politics, the politics of uh, pork are, are going to be widespread. You know, sociologists who study Max Weber will recognize a lot of commonalities with the idea of patrimonialism, uh, you know, the idea, right, where bureaucracies don't function by sort of clearly prescribed rules, but instead are kind of the preserve of, of, of individual, powerful individuals who sort of own their own, you know, basically convert their own public post for private ends. So all these things are related, but the problem that I found was that when I started using some of these other terms to describe what I was talking about, I would frequently get misunderstood. So um, one of the terms that I used for a long time was clientelism, which refers to patron-client relations. And then I'd go talk, and if there were any Latin Americanists in the room, they'd be very confused because for them, clientelism was a type of uh, electoral politics, basically, whereby, you know, you, you know, it's a patronage politics of elections. Whereas, uh, you know, kind of refining my thoughts as I was talking with different audiences made me see that I think this is, patronalism is a feature of society as a whole. And it's, it's, it's a way of, of social interactions and a way for collectively organizing for any kind of social end, rather than something that's kind of specific to the realm of bureaucracy uh, or, or authority, as in the case of uh, the Weberian concept of, patro uh, of patrimonialism or clientelism or patron-client relations, which, um, at least in some areas of political science, have a lot to do with, primarily to do with electoral politics. So my, my point is, I think that this concept is actually broad enough that it encompasses all these different kinds of phenomenon, um, but isn't limited by them and doesn't have some of the hangups that some of them have. So, you know, there's no need to get into Weber's head to find out what he really meant when he talked about patrimonialism, for example. So it, you do a brief survey of the history of paternal politics in, in, in Russia and Eurasia more broadly. And much of the debate uh, around paternal politics amongst historians, and ultimately this it revolves around the question of whether the Tsar or the leader is strong or weak. Uh, what is your take on this debate? One of the most interesting things that I've found uh, regarding politics in societies that have high degrees of paternalism is that, uh, for one thing, the most important collective actors, uh, most important political actors tend to be not so much political parties, uh, you know, not so much even concrete state institutions like parliament, but these extended networks of actual acquaintance that are led by concrete individuals that cut across parties when you have them, state institutions, business sectors. And so they're, you know, they're sometimes referred to as clans. And so these would be uh, characters like, uh, you know, in post-Soviet politics, you know, oligarchs or, um, you know, say the, the leaders of regions who then have their own personal connections, which extend all the way down to the grassroots that they can mobilize for political action. And um, one of the most interesting aspects of this means that, that power outcomes 
depend very heavily on the uh, ability of these different networks in a society to coordinate their action. Um, and so if there's a leader who is able to coordinate all these different networks around his or her authority, and that usually happens in kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, once people believe that this leader is going to be the most powerful person in the country, then they have an incentive to try to make peace with that person rather than to challenge them um, you know, because they can't rely on rule of law, for example. Um, you know, they have to have some personal tie to power. And so I think that's kind of the key, you know, personal relationships being absolutely crucial. So that means to protect your interests, you need personal access to the person in power, which, of course, requires knowing who's going to be in power. And so if enough of these groups agree on the need for somebody in particular to be in power, they can basically make that happen by orienting their um, political machines towards that authority. And so I think, uh, you know, through this, I've tried to interpret Russian history. Um, and I think it actually helps resolve some of these debates like the one you were referring to about the authority uh, of the czar. Um, so one of the um, big questions in, in history was, okay, well, how powerful is the czar? Um, so on one hand, you have, uh, you know, the, the Richard Pipes uh, school, which talked about the czars as being all powerful. And in a paternalistic society, uh, that makes a lot of sense because, of course, once all these different networks recognize the power of the, you know, recognize the authority of the czar, then the czar is pretty much going to be able to dictate, um, you know, what these different networks do. But then on, on the other hand, you've had these historians uh, such as Ned Keenan who have uh, argued that, well, the czar really only appeared to be powerful, that in fact, he or she depended for uh, their power um, almost entirely on these boyars, which were basically the chiefs of large noble families that, that I would characterize as extended personalistic networks that were led by these boyars. And so they were kind of the um, big political oligarchs or elites of the, of the czarist era. And uh, I think this framework helps us ex understand why this argument can uh, find sustenance uh, as well, um, because it's true. The czar, how does the czar exercise any authority? Well, it, it comes through what the, the boyars and these other networks do, um, because it's, it's the fact of their coordination around his or her, the czar's authority um, that makes the czar powerful. So if it does happen that uh, the czar falls out of favor with these boyar networks, then, you know, the czar can, in fact, you know, not, you know, find himself not being able to control the situation. Um, you know, and certainly there have been cases where, you know, there have been struggles for power um, or, you know, particularly in the cases of succession crises where uh, the czar has not been able to control the situation, right? Has not been able to um, handle things. And there have even been occasional assassinations, uh, you know, certainly attempts or uh, you, you've had certain basically big challenges to the czar. And so um, I think this helps us understand it. So uh, the czar is at once powerful because he's recognized by these networks as the most powerful figure and therefore they don't find it beneficial to challenge him or her. Uh, but at the same time, the czar depends on them for continuing to recognize his or her authority. And if that dissipates, then, you know, the czar does essentially become maybe not entirely powerless, but greatly weakened. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, and it's also the sense to with the what I get from a lot of historical literature on the Keenan side is that, you know, the, the Tsar's power emanates also from his ability to balance these various forces, these various patron client networks, 
and he maintains his power by not letting one get too strong or too weak. So does this do you see this playing out in in post-Soviet Eurasia? Exactly. I think that's the art of leadership in these societies is being able to balance and uh, find ways to coordinate um, these powerful political economic networks that exist in one society uh, around your own authority. And uh, the the logic of, of divide and conquer is certainly one big part of that strategy. Uh, because for one thing, you don't want, as a leader, any one of these networks to start getting too powerful, uh, because then they may be in a position unilaterally to oust you. On the other hand, uh, you know, you don't want too much disunity, because that can also make it hard to get anything done. And, uh, you know, so you want some kind of rivalry and competition and distrust among them, but not too much, because then you run the risk of outright warfare between them or other kinds of destabilization. So, you know, the strongest leaders, and I think this goes, you know, for the, the czars as well as, uh, you know, to the Soviet period, to the current day, um, have been those that have been able to find places and help each of these networks carve out niches and do so through times of difficulty when economic resources uh, might be scarce, uh, you know, uh, when some or all networks might be forced to tighten their belts, and in times of prosperity when the ambitions of the individual networks can grow and they might start uh, getting greedy and wanting more resources. Um, and when you have the possibility of new networks somehow arising or, you know, younger people uh, being entrepreneurial and, and amassing some wealth and power, that all this needs to be somehow uh, worked together in the system. Um, so I think this, the strongest and best leaders in, in the context of patronal politics, meaning the ones that have been able to best stay in power, you know, have been those that have operated quite cautiously among the networks, finding some kind of balance among them but being flexible enough to adapt to changing situations and changing relations among these networks. Right. In a way, I would offer a revision to the divide and conquer and, and call it more divide and consent in the sense of keeping them divided, but also maintaining their consent to rule. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's key, right? You don't want the division to break up so dramatically that it, it turns into a public conflict. Um, that's usually bad for stability. Um, and plus that you know, could shake the sense of permanence and control that you as a leader want to constantly project in order to maintain the confidence of the networks in the system. But at the same time, you know, you, you don't want them all uniting, you know, against you potentially as well. Now, many of these uh, Eurasian states that have uh, paternalistic systems are also so-called hybrid regimes in that they tend to include the trappings of liberal of a liberal democratic system, you know they hold elections, they have a constitution, they have courts, things like this. So, what role do things like elections and constitutions play in the dynamics of one of these regimes? And, and let's give some concrete examples. Maybe speak about Russia and speak about um, one of the Central Asian states. Again, think Kyrgyzstan is one you address. I think when talking about the czarist era, of course, and the Soviet era, you know, we're talking about kind of, uh, you know, paternalistic systems that were not grounded, you know, in any kind of uh, constitutional order or, you know, any, any sort of, um, you know, did not feature any sort of political competition. But I think one of the interesting things is that, especially in, in the current day, well, I guess I'd just say that, like, one of the most interesting features uh, of patronal politics, as I'd call it, um, is that uh, these 
formal institutions can still be very important. And formal institutions, I mean, like elections and constitutions. It's just they tend to have um, a somewhat different meaning. And so in cases like, uh, you know, Russia, Kyrgyzstan, or Ukraine, uh, I've often pointed to the importance of uh, constitutions. And one of the things that I think constitutions can do is um, not so much get people to obey the constitution, but create a certain symbolism that helps these extended political economic networks decide around whom to coordinate their authority. So if you have a constitution that um, stipulates that, okay, there's a president and this president is the most powerful person in the land, it doesn't matter so much like what specific powers the president has on paper, but the symbolism of the fact of there being a president and the fact that only one network can hope to have their person be president, right? Because it's an indivisible good, the presidency, matters a lot because whoever can occupy that presidential post is then able to demonstrate, first of all, by the raw exercise of power of getting that post, uh, that they are powerful and deserve respect. And also just the symbolism around the presidency itself is designed to connote power. I mean, that's why you see you know, Russian leaders and, you know, and all these leaders in these countries, right, kind of walking down gilt, gilded halls and, you know, kind of these uh, you know, very ornate settings, right? This is all designed to sort of, you know, symbolize power in a way that the people around them recognize. So what, uh, you know, what, what this means is that, uh, the, you know, the, the presidentialist countries where they have this kind of constitution have tended to drift towards a, a coordination of authority around the president into a much more authoritarian setting. You know, I would characterize that as one where rather than compete with the presidential network, the networks in the system compete with each other for the president's favor, right? So, is this the single uh, pyramid notion that you have? Yeah. Yes. I would call this a single pyramid system. And so if you challenge the president, most likely you're just going to be marginalized and not really find a whole lot of other uh, sources of support. So I, I think like that's kind of what we've seen in, in Russia over the years. Since 1993, you know, when the presidentialist constitution was adopted, you've seen a, a process through which specific Russian presidents, uh, and beginning, I think, with Boris Yeltsin, were feeling their way through this new system and finding ways to make it work for them, finding ways to use this, both the symbolism and the formal trappings of the office, you know, the formal authorities to reinforce their own power. So, um, you know, in 1996, I think that was the first time in which Yeltsin really tried to exercise these authorities. Uh, he had a big challenge from the Communist Party uh, leader, Gennady Zyugana, for presidency. And um, it was at that time that uh, Yeltsin was considering canceling the election because he thought, OK, well, maybe I can't win. But uh, Anatoly Chubais, one of the people near him who organized the uh, privatization campaign and therefore had very close ties with a lot of these most powerful economic oriented networks, said, okay, well, actually, I think there's a different way in which you can win, which is to mobilize these different networks to your advantage. So Yeltsin you know, pulled in all these favors, um, you know, oligarchs who could donate money to the regime, who controlled television. Even though they were often bitter rivals among themselves, they agreed to rally around presidential authority against the communists. And then Yeltsin was also able to pull together these political uh, machines. And then I think this was the platform on which Putin then later uh, developed his system just doing it much more efficiently and effectively for a lot of reasons that uh, you know I'd be happy to talk about. But I think kind of the other part of the question is then, okay, well, what? so how do how come elections can matter? 
Well, I think the I think the, the, the key distinction between different types of political systems, as I see it in the former Soviet space, is um, whether or not these networks of power are coordinated around a single patron or whether or not they're in fact uncoordinated, um, competing amongst themselves, but not for the authority of just one leader, but just competing for actual power themselves. And so I've called this a competing pyramid system. And um, elections, when they exist, one of the effects they have is to channel that competition among political networks to the electoral realm. So when we see um, competitive elections in, in Russia, like we did in 1999 and 2000, or when Putin first came to power, or in, in Kyrgyzstan, you know, right after uh, the, the Tulip Revolution, for example, um, or in Ukraine after the Orange Revolution, I think that's largely what we're seeing is um, the competition between these networks almost, almost nakedly using structures uh, of political parties um, as their vehicles. And so there are a lot of parties uh, you know, in places like Ukraine and Kyrgyzstan that are either just the, uh, as I said before, the extension of the networks of the leader or simply uh, a, a, a formality created by a network to try and get votes for that network. So, you know, a party might be called, like in the Russian case, a classic example is the Pensioners Party uh, that was created in the, the late 1990s. And so you'd think, okay, well, this is a party to support pensioners, right? To advocate for pensioners. But no, you know, in fact, you know, this was a party that, you know, maybe if it wasn't initially created, was soon co-opted by um, you know, certain networks to advance their own cause. And, you know, it's very hard to find a whole lot of actual pensioners, you know, certainly in the leadership. And so, you know, this is something that you see in these different cases that's pretty common. And so um, I think one thing that when you have a constitution that stipulates that there's not just one source of authority, right? It's not just a president, but maybe there are two sources of authority, a prime minister and a president, where the prime minister is not simply uh, anyone that the president wants to appoint, but uh, you know who becomes prime minister depends on the results of parliamentary elections. Like in, like in Ukraine now, and, and Kyrgyzstan has this system now, Georgia uh, as well. And so you know what this does is it means that uh, networks in the system that maybe are not completely satisfied with the deal the president is giving them have someplace else to go. So they could say, okay, well, I'm going to go approach the prime minister and see, well, maybe the prime minister can offer me a better deal. And the prime minister, yeah. um, there's a good chance that that prime minister is going to have an incentive to accept somebody new that will weaken the president. And so this creates a more, much more fluid dynamic um, that really undermines the, uh, you know, the single pyramid system, the ability of one patron really to dominate politics. Um, and and, and it, it can make for very messy politics in general. Um, because when I say elections amount to the competition among these different political economic networks, it's often not a pretty process, right? You have, uh, you know, corrupt journalism, you know, politicized television, like all these different things are, are there, but at least there's a pluralism there. You have different points of view, um, and usually each side can check each other and, and avoid, you know, the most egregious forms of fraud. So, uh, you know, in the end, people get access to different points of, of view, they can vote their conscience. Um, votes are usually more or less honestly counted. But at the same time, there's a high level of corruption there. Elites don't get along with each other. They have a very hard time making policy. So it's not a great outcome. But, uh, but it can be democratic, depending on your definition of democracy. Um, and uh, in that sense, I think there are some advantages of it.
with respect to, you know, compared to the more authoritarian single pyramid system. It's interesting because what the what you're describing is, I, and I hadn't thought of this, the, the, the role of the constitution as a structuring mechanism, because with these patron-client networks, you have a pretty de-institutionalized state. And, and it seems that the, one of the roles that the constitution plays is that it, it allows for some sort of structuring of power and, and not just a bunch of free-floating patron-client networks vying for power. So given this, given the deinstitutionalization of the patronal regime, how should we understand the state? Yeah, this is a very tough question. Um, and frankly, I, I uh, you know, haven't finished wrestling with it myself. But I think that, uh, you know, you know in, in reality, patronal politics you know, does involve a mix of the formal and the informal. So you know, I, I do think that the most important actors you know, are these extended informal networks. You know, which are very real. People in these political systems know exactly, you know, who they are and what the main ones are. You know, certainly the leadership does. But at the same time, they often choose to work through certain kinds of formal structures, right? So uh, they often do create political parties, for example, that, you know, have formal charters. You know, there are constitutions. And even though the constitution may not be observed in terms of, well, okay, you know, the president has these limitations to his or her power, right? Like those may not be observed. But on the other hand, uh, the Constitution does do things like organize people concretely within the state, right? So there is a parliament. Maybe it's kind of penetrated by these networks, but there are concrete individuals that, uh, you know, come every day when it's in session and sit in this building, get together, right? Go through these procedures. Um, these bureaucracies exist. These ministries exist. These people sit there. And that shapes the networks, right? Because where you sit kind of depends, you know, it affects who you meet. So it's not that it doesn't, you know, that, that there's no formality at all, right? That there's no institutions at all. You know, I think that in fact, there are, uh, you know, Russia probably paired to some regimes is fairly highly institutionalized. You know, if you compare it to like Afri African you know, like, 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 you know, Zaire, you know, Mubotu or, you know, people like that, right? Uh, you know, you had like extremely uh, deinstitutionalized regimes. I don't think the post-Soviet countries are, are typically like that. And again, I think that goes back to some kind of historical reasons. But so I think that the patronal politics is really an interplay between these two. Uh, but, but I think that it does mean that, that when we talk about the state, that oftentimes it's very easy to conflate the formal and the informal, and very hard to sort out exactly what it is. So, you know, so basically, uh, on the one hand, you talk about the state interference in local politics or in, in, in civil society. And uh, when people say that, right, well, they really mean kind of Putin and Putin's presidential administration, but it may not be actual state organs that are doing the interfering. It may just be that, you know, it happens to be that one of Putin's cronies owns the meeting space where uh, an unwanted civil society organization was planning their meeting. And, oh, you know, suddenly their contract is torn up. Uh, they can't meet there. The lights go out or, you know, all kinds of crazy things start to happen. So on one hand, that's the state because it originates from uh, the head of state and might even be planned by planned within the walls of the presidential administration, which is part of the state. Um, but on the other hand, it works through all these extra state parastatal informal um, organizations that are kind of attached to and inter interact with the state. So I think uh, the state certainly matters, 
but I think that it's just not such a clear-cut concept in these kind of paternalistic societies as it might seem on the surface, just because of these, uh, the, the importance of these informal um, connections, ties, and networks. Now, as you mentioned, as you started out in our conversation, that the post-Soviet world has experienced a number of revolutions in the 2000s. So how do you understand these revolutions in the context of paternal politics? And you've already hinted at that, is that, you know, at least during, a, and a lot of these happen around elections. So what is the role? What, how do you understand these revolutions? Well, I think that one of the Achilles heels of or the Achilles heels of any kind of personalistic system or system really oriented around a single leader is the possibility of succession. So anything that starts to raise the specter of succession or kind of create awareness or suggest the possibility of a succession occurring in the foreseeable future can be destabilizing for um, these political systems, right? Especially, you know, the authoritarian ones, the single pyramid system varieties. And so elections uh, fit into that uh, because that's exactly what elections are, at least presidential elections, are specific moments in time when people are cued to weigh alternatives to the president and then make a choice. And um, in general, I found that uh, so long as the president makes it clear, you know, the incumbent president makes it clear that he or she, in, in the post-Soviet case, is pretty much always he, intends to stay in power for another term um, and has the constitutional right to do so, that they're able to win uh, elections even when they're very down in the polls and things don't seem to be going well. They, they, they have enough authority to cobble together enough of these uh, networks to keep them in power. Um, so the real problem for them comes when uh, it's not clear that they're going to be staying in office. And the specific form of the problem is that the president usually tries to hand off power to handpicked heir, political heir, successor. And this turns out to be very, very difficult when the president, if the president lacks other forms of, author of real genuine public support, you know, as when the economy is going well, for example. And uh, so just looking and taking a step back at the uh, at these transition moments in the f former Soviet space, what I noticed was, first of all, that you see the, the most intense um, political competition coming about at these moments of potential succession. And then that the ones where you had the leaders ousted almost always tended to be cases where not only you had a leader who was, uh, I've called it a, as, a, as a, a lame duck, right? You're in a lame duck syndrome, you know, meaning you're expected to leave office sometime fairly soon, but have lacked uh, public support. And so this wound up being a pattern that fit very well that of the color revolution. So, you know, and, and leaders, you know, the, can become lame ducks for a variety of reasons. So in Georgia, uh, 2003, sort of the first of the post-Soviet color revolutions, you had a case where the incumbent president at the time, Eduard Shevardnadze, was facing constitutional term limits. And so shortly after winning his re-election to his second and final term in 2000, he made an announcement saying, OK, um, I'm not going to try to change the Constitution in order to try to seek a third term, right, to remove term limits so I can seek a third term. And uh, there was one great news report from the agency TASS which um, I'm not quoting it exactly because uh, it's from memory, but it, it said, this announcement 
rang like a gong through the Georgian political establishment. It's time to prepare for the succession. And it was shortly after that that you start to see um, Shevardnadze's machine fall apart. Previous uh, people who were part, you know, these networks um, or, you know, ambitious people, even within his own network, who were um, hoping to succeed, you know, who were basically supportive of him up until that point, now started to distance themselves from him and declare their own challenge to the presidency. And so this included his own minister of justice, uh, who was Mikhail Saakashvili, who then declared himself in opposition and ultimately wound up defeating uh, Shevardnadze in the Rose Revolution, mobilizing a coalition of support, along with a lot of other elites who had defected from Shevardnadze. And uh, in, in Ukraine, it was a very similar case, except that uh, Leonid Kuchma had the constitutional right. The court had ruled uh, that he could run for re-election, but he chose not to, unclear exactly why not, but tried to hand off power to a successor, Viktor Yanukovych, who was his prime minister at the time. And so, uh, you know, this basically also led to a process whereby people who had formerly been supporting Kuchma defected into the opposition and challenged him for the, the presidency and ultimately won. And so the, the chief figure here, of course, is uh, Viktor Yushchenko, who was uh, Kuchma's former prime minister, uh, went into opposition, then wound up winning the uh, Orange Revolution. Yulia Tymoshenko is another example there. And the process is similar in Kyrgyzstan as well. You'd asked earlier about like Kyrgyzstan. So, um, you know, I think there you have another case where you had uh, Oskar Akayev, um, longtime president, declare that he wasn't going to try to change uh, the constitution to get another term in office. And so he was in his constitutionally final term uh, in 2005, made this announcement, and then a few months later was um, ousted in the Tulip Revolution as his, uh, his basically people within his political machine defected to the opposition and uh, he, he lost support. Um, so this is a pretty common pattern that I think uh, you know takes us through most of the political ousters that we've seen in the former Soviet space. It hasn't always been through a street revolution, but you know the street revolution has kind of been the iconic way in which that's happened. Although in principle, you can have this all kind of work out and at the top levels, uh, you know, elites without needing to mobilize the public. Let me ask you something that I've been thinking about for a long time um, in terms of these systems, because one of the things that's striking is exactly this. The, the main the problem is how do you peacefully transfer power and how do you do without the elite essentially descending into cannibalism, right? <laughs> right, right. It, and, and this to me is a, is a striking difference from, say, uh, elites in Western Europe or in the United States where they certainly go to political war against one another, but they seem to at the same time understand that it, there's, the politics isn't a zero-sum game, right? In the, in the sense that there are rules and there is a almost like a class, what I would call a class consciousness. Uh -huh, uh -huh. In the sense of, yeah, you may be in power, but it, it doesn't mean we're not going to also benefit. So how do you explain this tendency of the, what I would call elite cannibalism in these <laughs> paternal systems? <laughs> Well, I'd, I'd start out by saying I, I don't think the post-Soviet space is the worst by any means. Um, I think, uh, you know, just because if you think about like some of the cases in other parts of the world where uh, political killings are much more rampant, military coups, you know, leaders being just killed. It's an interesting phenomenon that that doesn't really happen so much in the post-Soviet space. But on the other hand, um, you know, you're absolutely right. This kind of... Uh, you know, pol it, it, maybe it's not life or death. No, uh, it's in, in metaphorically. Space, but, 
but political death you can definitely talk about, right? So uh, it's a kind of political life or political death. Uh, you know, definitely you get that phenomenon. I mean, I think one of the most important achievements of uh, you know democratic countries is creating the expectation that um, you not only will live if you lose an election, but that you'll also be able to hold on to your assets and have a significant protection against you know predatory attacks from your rivals or opponents. You know, and you have that largely through the the rule of law and the dispersal of power. And so in Patronal context, it, it makes, you know, the rule of law tends to be uh, significantly weaker than in Western societies. And um, because, of, because power is fought for and mobilized for primarily through these personal connections, you really need that personal connection to the authorities uh, to be, you know, confident that your rights can be protected. That's not to say that People in these societies have no other protections. Uh, you know, they do have other strategies that they can pursue. Um, some very interesting research by Stan Marcus, for example, University of South Carolina, who's shown that some of these firms, uh, you know, can actually conclude alliances with foreign firms, uh, you know, kind of make some kind of arrangements because they can get some kind of protection from these outside firms. But for the most part, you're still very vulnerable, especially to a concentrated attack from your rivals if you lose a political struggle. And um, so I think kind of the political equilibrium that, that you've got in the former Soviet space is that you have very intense fights for the presidency whenever people expect that it's truly up for grabs, when it's really unclear who's going to win. And so these can be very intense precisely because you have a very well-grounded fear that if you lose, you know, whoever wins is going to go after you. Or at a minimum, they're not going to protect you if your other rivals start going after you. you know, plus the loss itself can you know, damage the confidence in you as a leader and the potency of your network, which then weakens it by you know, leading people who may have choices to go elsewhere. Let me make a let me make a comment because it, I also tend to also see this as it, and this specifically in the case of Russia, but it could be applied to to other Eurasian states too. And that is, you also have very young elites in terms of generations, right? The the elite in Russia has been decimated. Let's see, 1917, 1937, 19, during World War II to some extent, and then again in in 1991. So you have you don't have a long entrenched say, elite culture of power, power sharing, exercising power that you may have, say, in, you know, more democratic societies. Right. So, yeah, I, th I think there's, you know, one could argue, certainly, there's that, that cultural element of it, you know, just the lack of the kind of the habit of, uh, you know, forming these kinds of, of coalitions and protecting the losers. But at the same time, I do think that to, to some degree, you know, there are lines that, you know, these post-Soviet leaders don't typically cross too often. Uh, you know, like I wouldn't want to call it a, a pact or an informal understanding. So I guess I would say that, uh, you know, to be sure, you know, the Soviet history is certainly one of just, you know, outright eliminating all of your, you know, your most important enemies, right? That those that won't kind of play ball. And, uh, you know, even there within the system, uh, you know, during the Stalin period, you were in, in, in grave danger. You know, after you move to the Brezhnev era, right, there was much there was this idea of stability of cadres where as long as you were within the system, you know, a place would be found for you. Where you really started to run into the danger zone was if you were perceived as anti-system, 
right? If you were like if you join the realm of the dissidents or placable uh, opponents of the regime. And I think there's something maybe analogous to that today uh, in the post-Soviet context. So I'm not saying that they never prosecute their predecessors or people who kind of lose authority, but those who are more or less willing to keep quiet and play ball um, have often been more or less left alone you know, after, leaving, uh, after losing a political struggle. So uh, I, I, by left alone, I don't mean like they get to keep all their resources, right? They, they, they lose their resources, they lose their political outcomes, but, you know, they, they can, you know, have some maybe sinecure or, you know, go off and enjoy your dot. Right. They retire with a pension <laughs> in a way. You know, but they're not going to be executed or jailed for the most part unless they are continuing to pose some kind of active threat to the, to the, uh, the new authorities. So there is that. So I do think that, you know, there's a sense in which the, the current leaderships have not gone, you know, to a full extreme of kind of like, you know, Stalin era, you know, opposition. So there is a minimal uh, kind of security that these people have within their political system if they lose power. But they still stand to lose an awful lot, which I think explains the intensity of the conflict, you know, precisely you know, and primarily in these presidentialist systems where you have uh, a winner take all a perception, right? That, that it's uh, basically the, the presidency is at, sta- is at stake and whoever wins it, you know, basically gets to run the show and whoever doesn't threatens to lose um, almost everything, but maybe not quite everything. And finally, um, going back to where we started, you know, given the historical persistence of uh, paternal politics in Eurasia, where do you think that leaves the prospects for democracy? Well, I think uh, it's going to be a long road for liberal democracy uh, to appear in the post-Soviet space. Actual, just just plain, messy democracy is entirely realistic and entirely possible. Ukraine, in between 2005 and 2010, was coded as fully free by uh, Freedom House, and uh, it did. I think you know it, one could call that a democracy. You had. Uh, relatively free and fair elections where different points of view were represented. You could freely run. People's votes counted. Negligible fraud. And, uh, you know, people's votes actually translated into electoral outcomes. And so it was a form of democracy, but it just involved weak institutions and a lot of corruption that people don't like to see in a democracy that make it short of liberal democracy, right? So, you know, there's freedom of expression, but on the other hand, you know, you have you don't really have high standards of authority or, or high standards for media, you know, which would be almost blatantly taking one side rather than the other. Or, you know, maybe that's not even so uncommon in Western societies. But what's worse would be taking, you know, printing paid articles from uh, campaigns that are not labeled as such and all kinds of dirty tricks, uh, you know, even, you know, beyond what one would might even imagine in Western societies, which can also get very, very dirty. You know, and, and so I wouldn't say that these things don't exist at all in the West, but they're minimal. And when they happen, they're shocking. Whereas in the post-Soviet space, they tend to be the norm. And I think that that has a lot to do with the way in which um, political battles are waged through these uh, extended networks. And people don't have confidence that uh, in voting for um, or maybe actively contributing to a campaign that you don't know you know, through someone you don't have a personal connection with, that you can really rely on them not to cheat you 
later. And so a great lack of faith in the integrity of the whole process. And I think that weakens democracy and makes it very hard for democracy to be uh, accomplished. So I guess like what I would say, stepping back from that a minute, is that I think these single pyramid systems like we see in places like Russia, you know, Kazakhstan, are more fragile than we often think, because I do think that yeah. they depend a lot on um, the ability of the president to manage and balance among these different elite networks, the ability of the president actually to find some way to, to sustain high public support, and also to avoid succession crises. And, you know, eventually, old age overtakes everyone. And so there, there is a significant chance, I think, that these systems, through, you know, through some confluence of events, you know, can break down into competing pyramid systems. And if the, that process happens to involve some kind of constitutional change, uh, which often happens because the oftentimes people in the wake of these revolutions want to find some way to prevent their rivals from becoming too powerful. So I think you get the right kind of constitution adopted that can lead to this more sustained competing pyramid situation, like I think you see in Ukraine and Georgia today and Kyrgyzstan today. But the problem is taking that next step towards a true liberal democracy where, you know, really you need the rule of law. And it, that's just very, very hard to do. And I don't have any magic answers uh, for, uh, you know, how that can be accomplished. I think, you know, in the long run, it, it, the evidence that I, you know, the research that I've seen on this, it seems to suggest that it's a long process of kind of hit and miss and gradual accumulation of institutional reforms. Um, combined with economic development that can help make people at the lowest levels of these networks less dependent on their patrons and therefore more willing to take some risks politically or economically, um, all of which will weaken the authority of these patrons and may lay the groundwork for some kind of change. I would say finally, I, I do think that a, a strong leader who is actually sincerely committed to democratizing a country could do it. You know, if they, they acted in the right manner, took advantage of moments when they have strong political mandates. But in practice, it's just so incredibly rare because it's much easier for these leaders, even the ones that I think sincerely have democratic goals, to fall back on the old methods of politics, right? You know, relying on the your networks and the, the patron-client relationships especially because all these people are going to be coming to you as the new patron and offering their services, you know, whereas actually you know, doing the hard work to root out corruption, including among people who support you, establishing a rule of law, making clear and that you're serious about this is just very difficult and uh, with an uncertain outcome. So I think it can happen, but historically it doesn't seem that, that you know, a single individual leader has really you know, been the answer here. I, I do think it's a much longer uh, road. And for other countries in the West that have, you know, also in, in the past not looked that different from Russia or well, maybe from Russia, but from like Ukraine or uh, Georgia, you know, it's a very long road of, of uh, you know, kind of the establishment of the rule of law, making sure everybody was subject to the rule of law, you know, <laughs> including powerful elites and, you know, backroom dealers and making sure that, uh, you know, minority groups had sufficient rights and uh, weakening political machines, uh, you know, all that's a fairly recent process in the U.S. as well as other countries that are today considered liberal democracies. So, so I think there's a long road ahead for the former Soviet states, but uh, I do think it's possible. I don't think they're doomed to authoritarianism by any means. 
That was Henry Hale, professor of political science and international affairs in the Elliott School of International Affairs at Georgetown University and the co-director of the Program on New Approaches to Research and Security in Eurasia, or PONARS, Eurasia. His most recent book is Paternal Politics, Eurasian Regime Dynamics and Comparative Perspective, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the Table of Ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Forget.